If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans. Uh, we are continuing through our study this morning and looking at Romans chapter 11, uh, which we, we began last week outdoors and are continuing through this, this very difficult but rewarding chapter in the book of Romans. Uh, this morning, our, our focus will be on, on verses 7 through 10 of chapter 11, but I want to back up because as Karen alluded to, and as you see in the bulletin, this morning is a part two of what we began last week. And so I want to read uh, the passage we looked at last week, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 11, down through verse 10. So look with me at Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Pray with me. Father, as we, as we come to your word this morning, we echo the words that our choir has, has sung for us. Fill my cup, Lord. I, I raise it up, Lord. Quench this thirsting of my soul. Bread of heaven, come and feed me till I want no more. Fill me up, Lord, and make me whole. Father, that is our prayer. We come to your word seeking this filling, this quenching, this satisfying that only you can give. So please give it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Several weeks ago, as we were making our way through Romans 9, we came upon this doctrine of election. Where, where Paul says very clearly that God chooses to save, save those he chooses to save, and he hardens whomever he hardens. And in that section, Paul's primary focus, you may remember, was, was on this choosing. This, uh, that, that, he, this, that God chooses to save those he chooses. And this hardening side, the other side of the coin, he only mentions in passing. He, he mentions Pharaoh in Exodus as an example of this hardening, but then he quickly returns to this teaching of election when it comes to salvation. You know, as we've, as we've moved with Paul through, these, through this letter, Paul now returns to this idea of hardening. 
And let me let me say from the beginning this morning that this idea that God hardens people. That he takes their hearts and instead of softening them, instead of calling them, instead of drawing them to himself, he intentionally and actively hardens them against the gospel. I mean, you could hear it in our children's questions this morning as Karen was teaching on it. Why would God do that? It's a difficult question with with a difficult answer, because this is a difficult doctrine of Scripture. And we don't really talk about it much, do we? You certainly don't don't hear much about this hardening of God. I mean, when we talk about people who are who are not Christians, who do not believe the gospel, we rarely, if ever, put that on God's work, do we? In fact, I think that if we were to to write or to rewrite Paul's letter here and we were to look at verse seven and the way Paul writes it, he says the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. We actually wouldn't write it that way, I, I don't think. We would write it and we'd say, well, the elect obtained it by believing, but the rest refused to believe. And that's true. We would, we're not deny, I'm not denying the, the truth of that statement, but that's not what Paul says, is it? He doesn't say the rest refused to believe. He says the rest were hardened. They were passive recipients of someone else doing the action on them. You see, why is it? That so many hear the gospel and still refuse to believe the gospel. The answer is that God has hardened them. He has actively worked in their life and in their hearts, making them hard of hearing and hard hearted and blind and deaf and dumb. So that they will not believe the gospel. Just like he did for Israel and is doing for Israel. Now, in the coming weeks, we will talk about why this hardening takes place and how long this hardening will last, especially for Israel. But but this morning, I want to spend some time looking at at what this hardening is, what it looks like in our lives and in the the lives of uh, of everyday people that we know around us. The the non-believers that, you know, exhibit signs of this hardening here in Romans 11. And so to to show you what God's hardening of non-believers looks like, I want to just walk through these four verses. I want I want to show you what Paul understands the hardening of God to look like. Because I, I believe that when you and I come to understand. Not only that God hardens, but what this hardening actively looks like. I think that we will know not only how to respond to hard hearts. But we will also know what to pray for when we pray for non-believers. So let's dive in. First, look with me at verse 7, the, the, the start of it here. Paul says, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. And I bring up this verse because we need to keep in mind who Paul is talking about specifically in these verses. He's talking about Israel. Last week, we, we looked at the, the first six verses of chapter 11, and, and Paul was proving to, to his audience that God had not rejected Israel, and he did this first by pointing to himself. Paul says, I am an Israelite, and I am a believer, so I am living proof that God has not rejected Israel. And then he, he continued to, to argue for this, this truth by pointing to Scripture, just, that just as in Elijah's day, God had saved a remnant from among Israel to believe in Jesus 
Uh, so also he was doing in Paul's day. And so also he is doing in our day. And in every day since, God has been working to save a remnant from Israel, from among Israel, who will hear the gospel of Jesus, who will believe the gospel of Jesus, and who will be saved. This is something God did in Paul's day. It's something he's continuing to do in ours. And while the overwhelming majority of Israel may not believe, there are some who do. And this is all by God's grace. It is nothing but the grace of God. And were it anything else, it would stop being grace. And so last week, while we celebrated this this idea and this truth that God is saving a remnant. The question then begins asking in verse seven is, well, what about everybody else? What about the rest of Israel? If God's only saving part of them and a small part of them, then what do we say about the rest of them? And so Paul is asking this question. What then? What does this mean, Paul? What does this mean for the rest? And he answers. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. So what was Israel seeking? What is what is Paul referring to here? They were seeking salvation. Justification, a a right standing in the presence of God. And they were seeking this status through obedience to the law that was given to them by God. And yet they failed in this task. They, They failed to obtain it. This failure is the direct result of Israel's failure, not only to obey the law, but also a failure to see in the law, Jesus, the fulfillment of the law. And so because they failed to obey and because they failed to see Christ as its fulfillment, they failed to obtain the right standing with God that they were seeking there for generations after generations. But there's an exception, Paul says. The elect, this chosen remnant, they obtained it. They believed in Jesus. They received what they were seeking. And so as we we saw earlier in chapter 9, we see again here in chapter 11... Within Israel, there is a division. There is a group of Israel, a small group who believe in Jesus, this remnant. And then you have the rest of Israel who have refused to believe, who Paul says they were hardened. And Paul moves from here back into the Old Testament with three quotes from three different sections of the Old Testament. He first quotes Deuteronomy 29 with a, a quick reference in that, in that verse to Isaiah 29. And then finally he gives us Psalm 69. And it's helpful, helpful for us to know why Paul does this. Because I think there's at least two reasons for these references to the Old Testament. First, as Paul is always doing, he's proving that this hardening is not a new thing. This is not something that, that Paul is making up on the spot to explain Israel's refusal But rather, it is something that God has predicted would come and something that has been a part of Israel's history for a very, very, very long time. This hardening of Israel's hearts has been a defining trait of Israel from the beginning. And I think the second reason Paul quotes these three passages is that he's showing that this teaching comes from the entire Old Testament, not from just a small random section that's up for debate. But but Paul quotes Three references. Deuteronomy is from the law. Isaiah is from the prophets. Psalms is from the writings. The three major divisions of the Hebrew Old Testament. And Paul's saying in each one of these three divisions, from Genesis all the way to Malachi, from beginning to end of the Old Testament, 
God has been showing that he has been hardening Israel. And as we jump into these these references, I I want you to see, I I want to show you the effects of God's, God's hardening. And I think from here we see four. There's four effects, four practical evidences that God hardens non-believers. This is what the hardening of God looks like in our lives. And I, I'm sure that as we go through these effects, I, I imagine that many of you will be able to recognize them. And you'll recognize them, I, I, I hope, in at least two ways. First, I think you'll recognize them from your past. Because, you see, you and I, before we believed in Jesus, were too once hardened by God. And these effects once marked our lives. But I, I believe that you'll also see, as you engage with non-believers in your workplace and in your families and in your neighborhood and, and everywhere you go, you will see these four effects in various ways. But these four things will remain true. Because these are descriptions of people who do not believe in Jesus. They are descriptions of those who have been hardened by God. So let me, let me show you. Effect number one. A spirit of stupor. A, a spirit of stupor. And a stupor is not a word that you hear very often, but it's certainly a word that you never really want applied to you. It's a word that carries the connotation of, of being in a state just above unconsciousness. You're there, but you're not really there. You don't really feel anything, neither pain nor pleasure, but you just are there. Paul says that God has given to Israel a spirit of stupor. These hardened non-believers are, to put it another way, spiritually insensitive. And and not the insensitive in in the sense that they can't read the room and feel people's emotions, but insensitive in the sense of numbness. They feel nothing. Apathetic. Now, I personally hate going to the dentist. I think the dentist is one of the worst places to ever have to go for anything. But I used to love and still do love watching the the YouTube videos of people who have just gotten home from the dentist and have gotten home from the, the, the major works. And they're still feeling the effects of the medication and the, the numbingness, the laughing gas that the dentist had to use. And what I always love is the, the family members, the, the loved ones, the spouses who decided, you know what, this is a good moment to bring out the camera. Because this is the time that we will always want to remember as the time that they went to the dentist. I remember one of my favorites is, is of a little boy named David. And perhaps you, you're familiar with it. It's, a, it's about 12 years old, this video is. But David's a little boy who goes to the dentist and his father films him in the back seat in the parking lot just after the surgery. And he's very clearly still feeling the effects of this, uh, of this medicine. And he is going through a, a world of emotions and thoughts and questions. He, he's noticing things around him in, in very funny ways. At one point, he just randomly roars like a dinosaur because why not? But then he asks questions to his father. He says, I, I, I don't feel anything. And of course, follows that up with, I don't feel tired as he closes his eyes and almost falls asleep. But then he says, is this real life? Because the world around him feels so strange and his body feels so strange. He's he's asking his father, is this real? 
And then at the end of the video, he begins to even get a little bit teary-eyed because, again, laughing gas. And he says, is this going to last forever? And it's, it's, a, it's a funny video. But I can't help but think of, of that state that David was in after the dentist and think how true it is of those who have been hardened by God. Because we, we may laugh at David and it's funny, but the, the sad reality is that this spirit of stupor exists and is on top of and is placed on so many today. People are living in a, in a life that doesn't make any sense. There is a there is a spiritual numbness that characterizes their living. They don't feel anything. And at the same time, they ask the same questions that David asked in the back seat of his father's car. Is this real life? Is this going to last forever? Because they just don't see. They don't understand. They don't feel. They don't know truth. And so they're lost. You see, the hardening of God means that God makes people numb. To the spiritual realities of who he is and what he's done. It's not just that they don't believe. I think that's where we struggle the most. When we try to understand who Israel is and and how could Israel not believe the gospel when it came to them. They had years and years and years of teaching. How could they not believe? You see, it's not just that they didn't believe. It's that they couldn't believe. Because God had hardened them. God had placed on them this spirit of stupor, this this spiritual numbness and insensitivity. So that they cannot see things clearly. They cannot feel things appropriately. They cannot understand. You see, non-believers are in a state where the things of God make no sense to them. And more than that, they just don't care. You can talk to them until you're blue in the face about the wonders of Christ and the beauty of the cross and the forgiveness and the freedom that are to be found only in him. And they can walk away from that conversation, no matter how passionate, no matter how how entreating you are. They can walk away with absolutely zero feeling from any of it. And it's not because you fail to convince them. It's because they've been hardened and they are living under a spirit of stupor. That's effect number one. Effect number two, blind eyes and deaf ears. Blind eyes and deaf ears. You see, in addition to God giving the spirit of stupor, we see in this Deuteronomy quote that he also gives them eyes that do not see and ears that do not hear. And if you were to go back and read through the Old Testament, this phrase is a very common one given to Israel. It's something that is repeated very frequently, especially in the prophets. And the irony is, is that when it's repeated in the prophets, it's most often referring not to Israel, but actually to the gods that Israel is worshiping in place of Yahweh. For example, in Isaiah, God speaks through Isaiah and he points out the fact that Israel is bowing down to statues. They are taking wood from a tree and from that wood, throwing some pieces into the fire and then constructing a God that they worship from the same log. And he's pointing out the the foolishness of this. And he says, you carve little eyes into this piece of wood and you carve little ears into this wood. You may carve a little a little mouth into it. 
But these are eyes that do not see, and they are ears that do not hear, and it is a mouth that does not speak. And then Isaiah says, and all who bow down and worship something like this will eventually become like this. You will have eyes that do not see, you will have ears that do not hear, and you will have mouth that do, a mouth that does not speak. Because that is what we worship, and that is what we become. You see, spiritual blindness, the blindness that Paul is talking about here, spiritual blindness is being able to see the world around you and yet miss the true meaning and purpose of it all. Do you not see how many people around us, how many people in our own culture and society are going around asking the question, what is the meaning of life? What is my purpose? Why am I here? To which we can point to and say, well, first you need your eyes opened. To see the truth. And then it'll make a little bit more sense. Spiritual deafness is hearing the good news of Jesus and and it never sinking in. I think when we know this about God's hardening, that this is what it looks like. That is blind eyes and deaf ears. Knowing this, it shouldn't surprise us when non-believers make claims about the Bible or about the gospel that are absolutely absurd. And yet I'm almost always surprised by it. They make claims and statements like, what kind of father would kill his own son? That's not love. Or, or the, the, the problem with the Bible are the miracles. You, you're, you're believing in something that's scientifically impossible. And then those same people will turn around and give you a thesis on why evolution is real. I don't think we should be surprised by this. I don't, I, I don't think that we should be surprised or taken aback when non-believers say things about the Bible and about the gospel that we know not to be true. Because the reality is, these are blind and deaf people who just don't see and hear things properly. It just doesn't make sense. Not to them, and we shouldn't be surprised by this. It's not that they don't see, it's that they can't see. And it's not that they don't hear the gospel, it's that they can't hear the gospel. Because their eyes have been blinded by God and their ears have been deafened, and and until that hardening relents, they'll never see or hear the truth. So effect one is a spirit of stupor. Effect two is blind eyes and deaf ears. Effect three is a worldly appetite. This one's interesting. Look down at verse 9. David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. I think this one is is likely the most difficult for us to understand just from from reading it. But I want to take a minute here to grasp what's being said. And first, we, we need to understand what table the psalm is referring to before we can understand how it is both a somehow a trap and a, a retribution. And I think a lot of help is, is if we go back and we read the psalm that, that Paul quotes. It's Psalm 69. It's one of the most quoted psalms in the entire New Testament and is seen by almost every biblical writer in the New Testament to be a psalm about Jesus. And yet in this psalm, as David writes it, and David is praying, he is praying at one point this prayer for his enemies. 
for those who have turned against him and turned against the chosen one of God. And so he says these words, God, let their table become a snare and a trap. A stumbling block and a retribution for them. And so what he's praying, what he's asking God in this is that is that their blessings, their feasts, their times of celebration and their the, 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 the everyday meals that they have with their families at homes and the gigantic Thanksgiving level feast with everyone around them. David says, I pray that that table, those feasts, those blessings will be a trap for them. A, a punishment for them. You see, David prays that his enemies would be so caught up in the things of this world, the small fleeting trinkets of this world, that they will fail, that they will, excuse me, that they will fall into the trap of thinking that this is the best it's ever going to get. And that they will never seek anything beyond what is in front of them. Now, you see, when we bring that into the context of Romans 11, I think we begin to see Paul's interpretation of this psalm. You see, he's not saying that Israel is being punished by missing out on all the good gifts of God. He's actually saying the opposite. He's saying they're being punished through the good gifts of God. This is Israel looking at the blessings they've been given. A full meal, friends and family to share it with. They're looking at all the things that God has given to them and then thinking to themselves, God must be really proud of who I am and what I've done. Or else why would he give me all of these great things? We see this today, don't we? The misuse of God's provisions for our own pleasures and then think we've got it all figured out. God truly has blessed me, which means he must be pleased with me. How deadly a trap this is. The fact is that that these are things that we want. These are things that we crave. I mean, who doesn't want to have a big meal surrounded by the people you love? Of course we do. And that's that's not a bad desire. That's not an evil thing to pursue. What makes this wrong is falling into the trap of having a large appetite for the things of this world at the cost of a weak appetite for the things of the next. You see, church, this truth will never fail. A large worldly appetite always comes with a weak spiritual appetite. Always. When you crave and pursue and and chase after the things of this world, you are forsaking the things of the next. When your desires, when your deepest longings are for the things that can be obtained here. Then you have completely missed the fact that what true treasure is, is not to be found here. And yet, this is exactly what a hardened life looks like. It is someone who pursues the fleeting pleasures and the the, the goals, the dreams, the visions for what this life can be. And never gives a second moment's thought to what the next life truly is about. See, if, if you are more concerned with having your best life now. Then you will never consider what your best life then even looks like. And the hardened are those who pursue the trinkets of this world while forsaking the treasures of the next. 
So we've got a spirit of stupor. We've got eyes that do not see and ears that do not hear. And we've got a worldly appetite that diminishes a spiritual one. The last effect of God's hardening is, a, is burdened and broken backs. Burdened backs. See, the final effect of God's hardening comes in the last line of this section. He says, verse 10, Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Those of you who, who work physically demanding jobs, hard labor days, know what it means and has, you've experienced what it means to have a bent back. It seems that I'm, I'm constantly being reminded of my growing number of years. And a, a few weeks back, I was tasked with putting together my daughter's new bedroom suite. And so spent a few days and several hours every day bending over and working on putting all the tiny little pieces together of this dresser and bed and nightstand. And it was fine. Everything went smoothly, thankfully, until I decided to take a break and needed to stand up. And at that moment, I I try after being bent over this thing for hours on end, trying to stand up straight was physically impossible. And so instead, for the next 10 minutes, I walked around the house like this. Because I, I couldn't actually stand up. Because it just hurt. Because apparently that happens after you cross the age of 30. <laughs> but I couldn't help but, but think. I couldn't help but think of that when I read this verse. Bend their backs forever. That just sounds painful. But the thing is, Paul's not talking about physically demanding labor here that bends the backs of non-believers. He's not talking about something that just constantly weighs on them and carries and, and sort of hunches them over. That's not what he's saying. No, what Paul is talking about is this never ending desire, this never ending drive of working to earn your place in God's sight. Of doing whatever you can to remove any and all feeling of guilt and shame. You see, this desire to, to earn our place, to earn our righteousness and this right standing with God. That desire does not belong to Christians alone. But it is a desire that is deeply indwelled and placed within each and every human being. But the problem is that, is that those that God hardens. That desire only ends with bent and broken backs. As we try to carry burdens that we were never able to carry. And as we never stop and take a break from our labors, but we are constantly working to try and make this guilt go away. You see, being hardened doesn't mean you don't want to be righteous. It just means that you go all the wrong ways in in trying to get it. We work through religion. We work through self-help. We work through psychology. We work through our careers. We work through our families. We do anything and everything we can to be the best version of whoever we were made to be. And trying to make all the good things we do outweigh all of the bad that we've done. For Israel, this meant doing works of the law. Paul says that by hardening Israel, God was bending their backs in pursuit of obedience to the law. Something that they could never carry, a burden they could never lift, and yet never stop trying to lift it. And it left them with bent backs. You see, for us and so many of around us today, I don't, I don't know that we can say it's works of the law that we are trying to get. 
I certainly think that there are many non-believers who are trying to earn their place, who have, who have heard the gospel but do not believe the gospel, and instead are trying to please God by something they do. But I think for a lot of the rest of us, it is acts of kindness and acts of selflessness. Holding the door open for somebody at the grocery store. Giving change to the homeless man who's asking for it. Doing whatever we can to make ourselves feel just a tiny little bit better about who we are. If we can just forget about that guilt and about that mistake and about that sin and about that error for even just five minutes, then it will be a victory. And we work and we work and we work to try and remove this guilt. But the fact is, is that it will never come out. And instead, we become like Lady Macbeth, who can never stop seeing the stain of blood. It's just always there, no matter how hard we scrub. You see, the problem with this is that it's a curse. There's nothing that any of us can do to remove the guilt and shame that we feel. And the best we can manage is a temporary feeling of relief only for it to return stronger the next time it comes around. And so we work and we work and we work and we try and we try and we try. And ultimately, these hardened non-believers are all the only thing they're left with is a burden they know they cannot carry. Knowing that one day this burden is going to crush them. Hardened people will work to earn their place. And they will say that their salvation depends on something they must do. And they will earnestly believe that they can make it work by the end of it. And so they work. But it is a labor without reward. I hope you you recognize these in the people around you. Because here's here's what this means. One, if you don't know people who 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 you could say these effects describe them. Then let me say, I don't think you're spending enough time with nonbelievers. Because the reality is that these four effects do describe non-Christians every day. They are spiritually apathetic. They are blind, spiritually blind, spiritually deaf. They, they have a, a desire and an appetite for this world and nothing else. And they have broken backs because they're trying to earn their place. And if you can't point to someone in your life and say, yeah, I, I know exactly who you're talking about. Then let me encourage you to find new friends. And to go meet non-believers who are experiencing this very hardening of God. And go share the gospel with them. Because you see, what, what this means, and what I believe that these four verses drive us to, are, are three practices that we must do in light of it. I think first, as Christians, when we read these effects of God's hardening, the first thing and primary thing we must do is celebrate the grace of God that's been given to us. Because the reality is, is that without that grace, you and I are right here with them. We are the ones who have that spirit of stupor. We are the ones who have those blind eyes. We are the ones who have those deaf ears. We are the ones pursuing things of this world. We are the ones trying to earn our place. Were it not for the grace of God, we'd still be there. 
And Paul makes that point abundantly clear in verses 5 and 6, which we looked at last week. You were chosen by grace. Your hardened hearts were softened by His grace. Not anything you did, but something He came to you and did. All by grace. And were it on the basis of any work that you did, it would cease to be grace. So first, believer, before we begin anything else, as you read these effects of hardenings, first, let me encourage you, celebrate the grace of God that's been given to you. Because without it, we'd be lost. Second, we need to pray and proclaim. Pray and proclaim. I think that this this passage calls us to pray. Because we know, ultimately, the only one who can remove the hardened hearts of non-believers is God. And so we go in prayer and we ask him to do just that. To do what only he can do. And so we pray for the stupor to pass. We pray for the eyes to be opened. We pray for the ears to open. We pray for the appetites to change. We pray for backs to be able to stand up straight. Because the burden's been lifted. We pray for the hardening to relent. For God to soften hard hearts. But with that same prayer, we do not sit back and just wait and cross our fingers and hope that God does it. But we proclaim. Because God is not calling us to sit back and wait for this hardening to pass before we share the gospel. But rather, he is working to soften hearts through the proclamation of the gospel. It is as you share the gospel that this hardening is removed. It is as the gospel is shared and proclaimed to non-believers that hard hearts are softened. As the Spirit moves and works through that gospel proclamation. Christian, I think that one of the sweetest, most powerful moments that you will ever experience of the grace of God, apart from your own salvation, is for you to share the gospel with somebody who has this hardening on them. And for you to be there watching and witnessing as this hardening is slowly removed. To see that spirit of stupor pass and those eyes begin to open for the very first time. For that truth to begin really sinking in as they hear it. To disciple someone and to pour into someone as you see and witness firsthand their appetites change. As we see men who only pursued their personal pleasure now pursue the happiness and joy of others. As we see women who only knew gossip and slander and and selfishness now pursue the goodness and the health and the hospitality of other people. As you see these appetites shift. And as you see people with hunched over backs begin to finally stand up straight and celebrate and rest in the peace of God. I don't think there's anything sweeter for us to experience in this life than to be there when the hardening lifts. But in order for us to be there, we must proclaim it. We have to be willing to pray that God relent of his hardening, and we have to be willing to go and proclaim it to those that are hardened. But lastly, I think that as we read these effects of hardening, 
we need to be encouraged to avoid that which hardens. Just because we're believers and this hardening has been removed doesn't mean that we cannot go back to our old ways. Our hearts can develop calluses that are similar to the hardness that it once was. Christians can go through times of spiritual numbness. You can go through seasons of your life where you just don't feel the need for the gospel. You don't feel the need to open up the Bible. You don't feel the need to pray. And you just feel spiritually numb, having no desire for anything of God. It happens. And it's hard when it happens. Christians can experience darkened eyes and deafened ears. Christians can can have large worldly appetites, pursuing and chasing after the things that are found in this life instead of the things found in the next. Christians can, can work to earn their place, forgetting the truth of the gospel that the work has been done, but instead trying to pay God back for the things that he's given you. All of this can happen and, and does happen in the life of Christians. And there is nothing that will bring these effects to your life quicker and fuller than living in unrepentant sin. Living in sin that you know is wrong, but yet you still pursue anyway. It's the quickest and easiest, surest way to bring those calluses back. Christian, if that's you this morning, if you're feeling these effects of hard hearts, if those calluses have come back, there's only one way to remove a callus. It's to rip it off. And the reality is, is that you can't rip off calluses from your own heart. But there is one who can. And so if you are feeling the effects of this hardening, then the answer for you, for you is to go in prayer to the Father and say, break me. Tear off the callus because I don't want it there anymore. I want to feel again. I want to see again. I want to hear again. So as we, as we land the plane here, I, I, I hope that you understand why non-believers refuse to believe. It's not just that they don't understand. It's not just that they are, are adamantly opposed to God. It's that they can't. They can't believe because God has hardened their hearts. And you know what this looks like now. A numbness, a blindness, a deafness, a worldly appetite, and a broken back from trying to make themselves feel better about their sin. And you know this not because you, all, you see it, but also because you've been there. So knowing these things then, my prayer is that your heart would break for the lost as Paul's did. Both Romans 9 and Romans 10 begin with Paul's burden for Israel. Paul's burden for those that God has hardened. And he prays that this hardening would pass. God relent from this hardening. Paul pursued the lost, knowing that God hardened them. Paul pursued those that were far from God, knowing that God was active in keeping them far. But he pursued them knowing that through the gospel and through his spirit, God was bringing hardened people to himself.
I truly believe that this is what we need to be about as a church. Knowing the hardened, knowing that only God can soften, and knowing that he has chosen to use the simple sharing of his gospel to soften those hearts. That's what we need to be about. So pray, proclaim, and praise him for his grace. And guard your hearts that you don't let those calluses grow back. Pray with me. Father, forgive us for our hard hearts. For while you are active in hardening, we are responsible for our sin. And while we may not understand this this dilemma and this dichotomy of how this works, we do know this. That you are sovereign. We are responsible. So we pray, forgive us. We praise you for the grace that's been given to us as as believers. And were it not for that grace, we would be lost forever. God, we also pray and we lift up to you the people in our lives that are far from you. Those that still remain under this hardening. Whether it be Israel, whether it be neighbors and co-workers, whether it be family members and best friends. We lift them up to you and we pray, Father. Soften them. Relent of your hardening. And save them. Protect us, Father, from from unrepentant sin. That would bring calluses and hardness back into these softened hearts that you've given. Help us not to be hardened. But to repent. To confess our sins to one another and know that you forgive us. That you will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.